0: Hi everyone, I'm Tom Johnston, and you're listening to episode 50 of the Optimist in Progress podcast, where we speak to change leaders, innovators, and self-starters who inspire and fuel the practice of being optimistic. In this episode, Dr. Drea Lettermendi and I speak to our guest, Tom Kay. Tom is the founder of Finisterre, a cold water surfing company which he started nearly two decades ago with a single garment, a fleece designed to help surfers stay warm when they were out of the water. But Finisterre to Tom has always been much more than just clothes. The brand has been about a love of the sea or the ocean depending on which side of the atlantic you're from and they turn that love and respect for the planet into action they've pioneered the use of sustainable materials leading the way with working with ethical partners all the way through their supply chain they're a b corp and often referenced in the same breath as patagonia and the company has been built from their cliff top office in the small seaside town of st agnes in cornwall in the uk tom is a great example of someone who lives the values of his brand In this conversation, he's honest about how making the right decision for the environment is often at odds with the biggest profit margins, how a love of the ocean not only draws him to the water to surf, but also inspired him to be a helmsman for the Royal National Lifeboat Institute in his small town in Cornwall, where he's on call seven days a week and braves the toughest conditions to help save lives. He also talks about finding inspiration from nature. The way that Tom has built his company around great products, the environment and people is a source of inspiration for us here at Optimist, And I think you'll love this conversation with him. Enjoy. So, Tom, welcome to Optimist in Progress. Really excited to have the conversation today. Uh, And to kick off the conversation, we always ask about optimism. I'm curious to hear whether you consider yourself an optimist, if it is a word or an idea that plays any role in how you live each day or how you look at your business.
1: Yeah, uh, well, thanks for having us on the podcast. And uh, yeah, it's a question. I suppose, like, in um, I often think about in, I suppose, the business I've started and have been in for twenty years now, where you know you're trying to drive change, um, disrupt, do things differently. And I think um, I'm definitely an optimist and also a realist. So there's, I think, those two things kind of go hand in hand. So I believe in the the power to affect change, fact change. The positivity that people can bring you know micro changes having you know big knock-on effects um i'm also a realist and you've got to, you've also got to drive the optimism you can't just let it happen you've got to you've got to kind of really push it to to make it happen and i suppose what it is you ultimately believe in yeah so i am an optimist and also a realist i'd say that's a great answer it's so
0: interesting everyone has a different take on what optimism is and we always look at it as a a kind of gritty, gritty optimism—we call it—but I think that the uh, having a practical element to it seems key. I think it is a—it's not enough just to kind of look at something in a positive light. It's about taking actions to move towards it. So it's it's interesting that that marriage of you know optimism and realism, I think, is a is a healthy tension.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Tell us about a young Tom, uh, the, your formative years. Well. Okay. How- you know, who was in your life? Where did you grow up? How, how did you develop this perspective?
1: Um, so, I, I suppose my parents, sort of the, the answer to that is really, you know, the brand really finisterre is all about love of the sea and, you know, bringing that to people's lives and using the brand to kind of facilitate that connection and building like enduring sustainable product to enable that connection. But for me, the brand, you know, you go back to how that kind of that perspective came to life and finished there, it was really about how I was brought up. My parents, you know, sort of discussing it when we were older, sort of said that they always wanted to bring up my sister and I with the love of the sea. And that was very much in my early years. It was boats. It was, you know, when I couldn't, you know, still, in, you know, nappies or whatever then it was sailing windsurfing when i was about sort of 15 16 in terms of your question sort of formative years for really um surfing and like many people got into team sports or you know art or music or whatever you know whatever it was surfing was the sort of the thing that i really kind of found that became my identity and sort of surfing over in the uk where it's obviously pretty cold um and they were that was my kind of route into you know there's always the sea around me in many shapes or forms, and um, that led me on to what I, you know, where I, what I did after university or after school, and also at university.
2: I guess I want to ask you a little bit more about your relationship with the sea. I'm very fascinated yeah. by this. Do you have a an early memory? Do you can you recall back to that moment where I don't know you touched the sea or you saw something, you felt something what was that like for you? What, what did that spark?
1: Um, I mean, you know, there's many memories of like, you know, that's, um, you know, that, that's just, you know, young memories of me in the sea. But I think that I'd like to fit the question around is that, um, you know, after I left university, it wasn't around and that's when I really realized you like it, so you know, it's taken away from you. It's always been there. And maybe you take for granted, or you don't realise how important it is, or whatever it is. And suddenly it's not there. You realise how important it is and has been for a great proportion of your life.
0: So, at what point did you start thinking about creating Finisterre? So, and and realising that you wanted to be an entrepreneur? Because I think you studied something completely different at university or college. Right? You studied it to be a surveyor. Um, I, did,
1: I did actually biology with a, a marine focus at uni at Bristol. And then after that, I went to, and this is my sort of point, I, I went to, um, I left uni and, you know, I do quite a lot of talks at university and schools now. And the kids are like so switched on. But I left uni, like, no idea what was going on. <laughs> Just sort of suddenly it stopped. And I was like, oh, right, what do I have to do now? Sort of thing. So I ended up as a surveyor in London. Um, and you know, miles away from the sea, in a in a suit, uh, in the in and you know, at like that sort of stage of my life, I, I was like, right, I've done all of my education, I'm here, I'm full of life, the rest of my life is stretching ahead of me, right? You know, what was what was happening? And then being a being a surveyor in a you know property company in London was what I was met with. And um, as I said a minute ago, then it was and it was at that time when something that had been really close to me and around me and all the rest of it wasn't there that I knew I had to build a life and a brand and something around, around that to kind of, you know, to bring it to life. And so, um, that's how the kind of, I suppose it was literally walking around the, um, you know, lunchtime West End London, sort of working out how I could bring all the things that are important to me in my life into like an entity, I suppose. Yeah. And that was the sea. It was an environmental awareness of the damage to the oceans as well. I think you know biology and you know there was been that's always been like that awareness. Um, and then you know thinking about what 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 would this brand make? And it was really around the sort of product that I felt was missing from the sort of life I was leading. I suppose
0: it's really interesting, isn't it? Sometimes you're kind of attracted really hard towards something, but actually it's as powerful to be pushing away from something that you don't like. Um, in order to kind of show you what you do could you talk us through the early years of Finisterre so you made this decision you were walking around London it didn't feel right you were it, it kind of the the whole way of living didn't kind of fit how you were and what you wanted to be doing you had this entrepreneurial idea for Finisterre which combined um, love of the ocean love of the sea um, love of surfing care for the environment talk us through the early years when you were Pulling all those things together.
1: Yeah, so that was, I mean, you know, Finister. the name Finisterre means end of the earth, land's end, and um, it's an old BBC radio for shipping forecast. And it's basically a, um, a forecast that covers all the sea areas around the British Isles and some parts of Europe, and it goes miles out to sea. And it's actually for uh, fishermen or trawlermen or sailors or any vessels out at sea. And it's um, the way it's read, it's very kind of formulaic and is. Is a really sort of very serious forecast. It's also very romantic because these sea areas have got really amazing names, and they don't obviously exist in in space or time because they haven't got fences. Just there are sea areas out there, and people have never been to sea in their life. Would will listen to shipping forecast as a sort of like it's a very very romantic kind of um, forecast. But it's also very real, and so I can remember listening to that drive on my parents' car when I was really small, and listening to shipping forecast and hearing these big storms yeah. coming in and imagining these tiny. Uh, boats and these huge seas and heres I sat in a safe car so and Finisterre is one of the sea areas and so it has a very very important sort of powerful meaning uh, to me personally and also the brand because the you know the shipping forecast is very romantic um, it's also very real it's there to save lives at sea pretty much so um and often we I draw those parallels with Thorstein in terms of we're doing some very real, you know, innovative stuff. It's also quite a romantic brand. So um, that's the name came from. Uh, and literally, it was a move to Agnes, uh, which is a cool little town. It's an old sort of fishing mining town on the north coast of Cornwall. It's like super rugged. It's like, which you know, when when a, when a full winter storm comes through, you really feel it. You know, last few weeks here it's been crazy. You know. Twenty thirty foot seas, and so for me it was really important that the brand really sort of started somewhere that was really true to what it is and who we are, and so that's where it began. It was a, a three page website above in my flat above the surf shop, uh, and I was selling. I made this fleece that was windproof, waterproof, breathable, and the idea was you came out of the water in the middle of February, and this is what you put on when you changed in the in the car park. So it was you know very functional, durable. Um, long-lasting product. You still see it around today, 20 years later. And that was our first product. But because there's a sort of story behind the brand, why it started, there's a need for product, there's a need for the um, brand. And we also gave a sense of our uh, profits to surf skin Sewage and the Marine Conservation Society. So it's just kind of like, there's a really sort of strong meaning to the brand. A lot of value, the brand values that um, I put down that first website commitment to product, to environment, and people still you know it exists even more so in the business today. So, um, and that was it really. And it was you know, a guy would drop the fleece down the back of his like dodgy 80s Rover. Uh, I would sell. I was doing part-time lifeguarding, whatever, and I would um, sell you know one or two a day. Checks would come in, and that's how it all started really. And it was um, I often get asked the question how you know did how do you go about making products, and it, it was like you know, there's no, there's no like magic sort of formula to it. I literally got stuff around the kitchen table, put it together, dried it, you know, blew through it, left it out in the garden, see what it was dried. My mum and sister involved, it, it was like proper um, startup stuff actually. And um, we then hit on the product that, you know, served as well as a kind of like a, our first product we made.
2: Sounds as though conservation is a huge part of this endeavor and this this brand building. Uh, yeah. As I understand it, Finisterre has been encouraging people to um, to ha- to have a consciousness about uh, their responsibility for uh, protecting the oceans and yeah. community building is a huge part of the brand of your uh, of, of this business. So, so how did you go about creating that? How did you Begin to build this community and really center that sustainability and conservation element in the brand.
1: Yeah, I mean, so there's a few sort of threads to that question, I suppose. Um, The first one is we never, never really sort of set out, you know, to build a community. We were just doing what was right and what we believed in, as we still do today. And it was very much on intuition and belief and passion and you know conviction about this is the right thing to do. This is the right, better way to make product. It's a better way to be as a business. It's a better way to, you know, disrupt or be innovative, or whatever it was. So, um, you know, it was, it, and you know, from that, you know, you, you do something and people are attracted to it, and so you build a community that way. So, it's always been, you know, what you believe is the right thing to do, um, and then the kind of community follows. And then, I suppose, the you obviously got the the product, we are a business, so we do, you know, we do cause damage and the rest of it. So, how do we mitigate that? How do we do it better? How we build, you know, innovation, sustainability. Use the business to really affect change. Um, you know, challenge what's gone before. Do things differently. That sort of thing. So there's a sort of sustainability element to what we do as a as a as a business in terms of what we make and our impacts. And you know, moving towards the positive impact, um, and there's also the kind of the effect the brand can have on people in terms of helping them on their conservation journey. Because I suppose, uh, our protection journey, the sort of belief is we believe if you, if you if you've been in the sea or near the sea or have had that effect of that being near near or by the ocean, as you guys call it. Um, would be that you would understand it's it's better for you in many many ways. It's now been proven, you know, well-being, physiological, psychologically, everything else. That uh, you then went back on went back on land. You then all your life to protect it, to stand up for it, to um, realise how important it is, not only on a personal level but also on a on a global level with the state of the the kind of global environment.
2: I'm hearing this like really interesting connectedness between people and, and oceans that yeah. um, when you spend more time surrounded by that landscape, you sort of begin to integrate the importance of protecting it and your role in, I don't know, decimating it, uh, destroying it uh, and, and how our daily lives might really be uh, impacting the oceans are, are there other yeah. initiatives that that you've built or been in, involved in to inspire other people to to take this on
1: yeah so we did we did this great uh, we did an ocean activist training camp um last year when we had g7 which was you know when all the you know inverted commerce superpowers of the world get together and it was actually in cornwall and it was like you know 10 miles away whatever it was crazy. Crazy. The FBI were here for months before, there was aircraft carriers, <laughs> it was like, you know, properly like um, one of those you know, films that you see, like it was, it was, and so when they were doing G7, we ran our ocean activist training camp, we called it C7, and the idea was that we, we got scientists, activists, um, environmentalists, you know, uh, everyone, loads and loads of the, all the kind of big ocean um, community on board to talk about the seven key issues facing the oceans today, and there's a few things that really—I mean, we had like you know, Jack Costos' great granddaughter. We had the Blue Planet uh, producers. We had you go from SAS. We had Wallace J. Nichols, a really amazing guy out over there in California, wrote a book uh, all about Blue Mind stuff. So, um, and they all did a talk a talks about the importance of their kind of areas. Um, but the whole thing was that it was it was uh, it, it was helping people. Because I think people look at activism, they think, you know, look at, you know, uh, a, a Japanese whaling boat and they think, oh, there's no way I can throw myself in front of that because I'm a mum or a dad or whatever it is. Or, you know, that's just not, not real. But it's amazing what they do. It was actually about saying that most people are on their activist journey at, you know, at the very beginning of it. So how can we help you understand the issues that are going on? And, you know, if it's your, your mum in Bristol or, or, you know, whatever, you know, um, or, you know, family living, you know, normal life, whatever it is, how do you then bring in this activism into your life around standing up for the ocean? And, you know, most of the people who were, took part in C7 were at a very early stage of that journey. And the whole thing was the Brown would then, like, use that as a kind of gateway to inspire and um, encourage you to be brave around beginning that journey. So in many ways, Finisterre has been ahead of its time
0: for a long time, I think. Your kind of care for the environment, an increasing number of companies are now B Corps. I know that you've been a B Corp uh, company for a long time, and you founded with this commitment, um, a really strong commitment to the environment. Have you noticed a shift in how other businesses are are, are moving towards this? And who do you look to for inspiration? Because in many ways, Finisterre has led the way for a lot of other businesses and you've inspired lots of others. Are there people that you look towards for inspiration too?
1: Yes, I mean, I think, you know, there's a few things there. you know, it's it's really good that people are, you know, other businesses are really kind of, the, you know, when we first started out, it wasn't really... On many people's agenda, you'd get recycled fabrics or whatever. It was like it, was, it wasn't even on thing. So, yeah, I think we have led the way in many ways, uh, and you know, it's but it's great to see, you know, and if we're an example to other businesses, then to do things differently, then that, that's amazing because the more people are doing things better, the you know, you, the kind of the net result is hopefully a better one. Um, and so, it's it, yeah, you know, it's really encouraging to see that there's still, you know, there's definitely an urgency to people doing that and businesses doing that and you, know, you, they, you, everybody could always do more. So you've got to keep on, you can't just sort of sit back and go, Hey, we we'll are be called certified, you know, cool, we'll see you next year sort of thing. Mm-hmm. You've got to keep on pushing and driving forward with this kind of agenda for change and using the brand as an example of how change can be brought about and that sort of thing. So. Um, yeah, it's super, super exciting. To, you know, it's, good, it's good to see that. I think, you know, there's obviously, you know, there's an authenticity element to it that I think customers are getting more, can, can we just get more aware of, you know, who's actually doing it and really doing it and who's just saying they're doing it because it's, uh, you know, like the, the latest sort of marketing consumer trend, whatever it is. So, um, yeah, that, that that's, you know, that's kind of, it's, it's encouraging and, um, yeah, you know, more people, in the b core community how much that's growing is a kind of good example of that i suppose of, of you know businesses going through quite a rigorous uh assessment process to become certified and um that become a framework for growth which is 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 a, is a good thing and you know it's a very much you know it's the start of a journey and you kind of on that journey and hopefully you kind of use the framework to grow in the right way and get better and better what you do is you evolve and grow so yeah it's, it's good it's good to see i mean you know there's many brands we look up to. You know, obviously we often get references with, with Patagonia as a brand, which is you know amazing what they've always done and have done for many years, and I think have been leading light in many respects. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's it's you know, there's a few sort of brands outside of our industry. I mean, the clothing, the clothing industry and the sort of apparel, what you call it, industry is um, you know is notoriously not very good in terms of environmental, sustainable footprint. So. Um, hopefully, we're kind of, you know, continue to lead lead, lead that way a bit and sort of show what can be done.
2: Beyond Finisterre, we learned that you also volunteer for the Royal National Lifeboat Institute. Yeah.
1: What? Right,
2: yeah. Uh, yeah. What motivated this service? And and I imagine yeah. it'd be taxing. I
1: suppose we will. Your will your listeners know what that is or not?
0: They they might not. So it's a it's. Yeah, do you want to uh, give people some context on that?
1: Yeah, the Royal National Lifeboat Institution, or the RNLI as it's known, is like I think it's nearly two hundred years old in two thousand and twenty-four, uh, and was started you know two hundred years ago when there was a lot of you know the kind of the um, maritime sort of industry around the UK was was pretty significant uh, and your know, trade and boats and you know, some coastal island ultimately, um, but there was a lot of um, you know casualties and shipwrecks and a lot of people were losing their lives um from you know accidents and you know poor safety or navigation or overloading whatever so they they are and life started out as they um, as it was started to really look to address that um and it was lifeboat service that was manned by volunteers um and it's you know it's really rich heritage and again it's super romantic uh but very real and quite gritty you know when you see the pictures from 100 years ago of um men and women rowing out in the teeth of like a january gale you know wearing not much from wearing now to you know put themselves at risk to go and save someone else's life it's a volunteer ethos and so um It's a super, um, kind of, it's very well known in the UK and the coastal communities and actually elsewhere in the UK. Um, You know, there's 256 LIFO stations around the country now. And, you know, it is obviously the, you know, the health and safety, you know, you you get a light, I have a helmet, I have a a dry suit, the, the equipment's got much better, but they're very much the spirit of volunteering. And ultimately your pager can go off 24 hours a day, 365 days a year you Know that page goes off, you drop everything. You, I run down, you know, from work or uh, drive down from here to the station, uh, any time of day or night, and would get in the boat and drive it out to whatever the, the shout is for, you know. And so, but it's everyone's volunteers and, um, is putting themselves potentially at risk to go and save someone else's life. So, it's it's uh, it's a really amazing thing, you know. It's really weird. I, I I did an interview that day, and it's like on one hand, it's not a big deal because a lot of people do this in coastal communities around the UK. On the other hand, it is a big deal when you you know it's a big sea, you're putting yourself out in danger. Um, and I suppose having been around coastal communities my whole life, it's something that I've always wanted to do. And I suppose you know being fit and all the rest of it, you know, I felt I should do, I could do, and I ought to do. So um, yeah, it's it's, it's 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 a big thing. I'm really proud of it. I've just um, done 20 years now. I'm um, one of the helms, so I drive the boat. I'm um, senior helm, actually, so I'd, actually I'll drive the boat. Um, and where we are in St. is a surf station. So the boat we drive is, is um, it's only like 14 or 15 foot long. It's quite small, but it's uh, three crew, 50 horsepower on the back, and in and out of the rocks, the caves, the, the sort of big beaches here. And you'll often be launching out through, you know, head high, overhead high surf. So, um, yeah, it's it's, it's 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 also it's a good it's, it's fun. I enjoy it. You know, it's good. Uh, it's good team spirit. and Really great bunch of um, you know men and women on the crew. And uh, yes, yeah, so I'm really proud to do it actually. And you know, you know, when I'm no longer doing it, I can look back and say, you know, that was that was a good thing to have done, and I really enjoyed it.
2: Truly, what an amazing service. Uh, I. I... Was not familiar with it, so thank you also for yeah, enlightening us.
1: Some, some, some homework for your um to your listeners is Radio Four Shipping Forecast and BBC Radio Four, and uh, have a look at some of the R and stuff on um on whatever. It's 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 really interesting and it's kind of um yeah it's it's, it's a special thing over there.
2: Well, Tommy, you have an incredibly busy life. Uh, I imagine balancing everything: your working life, your volunteerism, um, the family uh, that we that we got to meet. Um, how do you look after yourself physically and mentally? What are the things you do on a daily basis that you feel nourishes your spirit, fosters uh, the, the you within?
1: Um, that's a great question. Um, and I think, you know, as, as you said, it e- e- sort of, um, easily could get, um, sidelined, but I try and do, I try and get in the sea whenever I can. And I think you're talking about a relationship with the sea is that I think when I was younger, it was a lot more, you know, what it would give me from kind of adrenaline sort of point of view, or like, I'd go out and it'd be a sort of, it'd be a big, a big, a big thing. Um, you know, uh, and I'd be, it'd be, a, I'd be wanting something from it. Um, and now when I'm a bit older, it's a bit more of a, um, holistic relationship in terms of, you know, just, getting in the sea, it doesn't always have to be like, you know, huge surf and, you know, crashing waves. It can be like a swim or just even go out on, you know, on a small fun day on a, you know, when you know, the best days actually are uh, for me when there's no one else in the water and it's like surf's not even that good, but just to get in the water. So it's become more of a, I realized maybe the sort of the, the kind of the um, symbiotic relationship, I suppose, that I have with the sea. So that's something I do a lot. Um, you know, we're fortunate where we work is on the cliff on the site of an old tin mine. So I'll often go for a walk with Otis. Um, you know, try and do yoga. I've sort of the meditation's probably not as good as it should be, but that's, you know, that's always good. And um just try and live in the here and now rather than you know, the frenetic kind of uh business sort of life that, you know, does exist in sort of these types of businesses. Um yeah, and yeah, actually time with the kids is pretty cool. That's always a switch off because they were not let you <laughs> do anything else when you're with them. So, yeah, uh, and I just, yeah, that, you know, that, that's, that's just fun, whatever it is, actually, yeah. And you gave some
0: inspiration from nature right at the beginning of lockdown, which I, I personally loved. It It was about a bird migration. Um, so I know that you kind of look far and wide. Can you remind me what the bird migration was? It was, a, it, it was a post that you did right at the beginning of, of the COVID, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Tom. Thanks. I'm glad it got to you out there. So over here in um, the UK, we have like a super seasonal, like, uh, you know, quite a lot of the birds, they come in the winter and they go in the summer and other ones arrive. So there's quite a lot of of migratory birds. And when I was growing up with my mum, she was always like, you know, keen, you know, the geese coming in the winter and they come down from Iceland, wherever it's super cold or the the terns arrived from South Africa and that's that single summer. But the the big the biggest sort of symbol of that was the arrival of swallows on, on in the UK. And um, it's actually about now, anytime now you can start to see them. And, you know, it was the start of COVID, nobody knew what was going on. I thought the business was going to fold. It was all kinds of stuff was, um, you know, nobody knew. You know, it was a scary time for a lot of people. And, you know, the the, you know, the, the nobody knew it was, what's going to happen if you got infected. So it's, it's super, super scary. And, um, but I always sort of looked at the sort of resilience of nature uh, as a sort of you know, symbol of hope, I suppose. And um, you know, resilience is a, is a pretty good trait, I think, that um, I've dug into quite a lot as an entrepreneur. And I think if you look at resilience of nature, you can really, it's everywhere. And so the Swallows anyway, they all migrate uh, from South Africa. They fly for 40 days straight. 200 miles a day to arrive on these shores. And they come here to nest and feed because the insect population. And so when you see them coming, when you see the first one, you know that of all the crazy stuff that's happened in the last six months, whatever, you know, the world is still turning and this little bird has like traveled all that distance and nearly, you know, nearly killed itself to get here. And it's a real sort of symbol of hope and possibility and, you know, optimism, I suppose, in terms of, um, you know, the, the sort of state of the wider world. And yeah, so it's a big, I and mean, we always have a race, my mom and I, who sees the, the, uh, the first swallow, and that's this sort of family thing. So yeah, it's got a lot of meaning, actually. And um, so I was saying, you know, you might see it next week when you're over 20, but if you see one, you need to stop and just remind yourself what that bird has been through to get here. And it's like, wow, that's that's something special. It's
0: amazing. It was really, one of those really inspirational Things to look into right at the beginning of COVID, when everything just seemed to be closing and everything seemed to be getting harder, and then looking to nature to its resilience was a great thing. So yeah, I really appreciated it. Um, and what about cultural inspiration? Could you um, is there a track? Do you listen to music? Is there any um, music that you could give us that we can put on the Optimist in Progress playlist that is inspiring to you? That might be inspiring to our listeners.
1: Um. I'm I'm really bad at I have like a, a massive Spotify or is one big big list and it just it just goes and shuffle. so I don't I'm, I don't really I, I saw that in your questions but I'm not I don't really have an answer uh didn't get enough time. To well, we can it. put the uh, Radio
0: Four shipping forecast in the.
1: Yeah, that could be my recommendation. Actually, just listen <laughs> to that and you know turn you know turn on all other stimulation off and just listen to it and. um as i said there's people who listen to it have never been seen in life before but it's a very romantic poetic way that it's read and all the all the, the forecast um elements are it will say like rain late, doesn't mean some rain summer and rain and that means rain in six hours you know rain soon means it's three hours there is so yeah that'd be my um putting my cultural recommendation <laughs> if that's possible excellent and well tom thank you so much for your
0: time today it's really inspiring hearing your story and the finisterre story um, could you just let our listeners know where they can best find uh, you and Finisterre uh, on social on the, on the internet? And um, we're really grateful for you joining us
1: today. No worries. It'd be a pleasure and a real privilege to be on here. Thank you both. So, yeah, um, Finisterre.com is the website. That's F-I-N-I-S-T-E-R-R-E, which means end of the earth, lands end. And it's just at Finisterre on Instagram. Um, so uh, that's the best place to find us. And we are online, got nine stores around the UK. Um, hoping to make it over the States one day, uh, one day soon. We have a lot of friends and, uh, you know, um, community out there. So, um, yeah, hopefully watch the space and we'll be out soon. Well, there's quite a few
0: Finnish stair jackets making their way around Venice right now. <laughs> OK, that's good to hear. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Optimist in Progress podcast, brought to you by Optimist Drinks. This podcast is presented by Dr. Drea Lettermendi and me, Tom Johnston. It's produced and researched by Lisa Farr Johnston, with original music from Reginald Science Perry and edited by Brian Ward and Aguinya Odell. Email podcast at optimistdrinks.com with any questions or ideas and follow us at optimistdrinks on Instagram for updates
1: on upcoming shows.